Whether it's reading tea leaves, staring into a crystal ball, or using tarot cards, humans have for centuries been curious about what the future holds. Today, large corporations, media outlets, event planners all turn to futurists to provide insights and commentary on what the future will look like. Welcome to episode 145 of This Shit Works, a podcast dedicated to all things networking, relationship building, and business development. I'm your host, Julie Brown, speaker, author, and networking coach. And today, I'm joined by Kate O'Neill, a tech humanist and author of A Future So Bright, helping humanity prepare for an increasingly tech-driven future. And she does this with her signature strategic optimism. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. To be honest, with global warming, water scarcity, wars and conflict, forest fires, earthquakes, tornadoes, an increasingly polarized population, bank failures, and all the other shit going on in the world, sometimes it can be hard to look at the future and imagine it turning out all okay. Well, the good news is that my guest today believes that the future doesn't exist yet. And that's okay, because we have the tools to build a better future anyway. From strategic optimism to artificial intelligence to the future of jobs, we are going to get into it all. So without further ado, let's welcome Kate to the podcast. Thank you, Julie. (laughs) Hey, first question, which I'm sure you get asked a lot. What is a tech humanist and how did you become one? Yeah, I do get asked that a lot. (laughs) And uh For me, tech humanism is just the natural place where someone who's interested in the better outcomes for people, who is also working at the intersection with technology and, you know, digital experiences and digital culture is interested in just kind of steering those tech-driven experiences toward those better outcomes. So that's what, um, yeah, in my career, I've become one as your second part of your question by working in technology for over 25 years and always being the person who is agitating for people, (laughs) the customer, the user, the guest, the patient, whatever the role a person is in at the time that they interact with a business. Mm -hmm. I've always been the person that's like, but what about the customer? One of your first roles in tech was with Netflix, right? Yeah, that was an early one. I, I, uh, it was 99, 2000 or so when I joined, uh, I can never remember exactly, but it was, I was one of the first hundred employees at Netflix. Yeah. So that's kind of bonkers. So this was when we were still mailing. Yes. Oh. Yeah. DVDs. Yeah. And that's actually how I became acquainted with them is because I bought a DVD player and they were far enough along to have like inserts in the DVD player boxes within the region, within the Bay Area. And so I was living in the Bay Area. I bought a DVD player. I got this little insert. I was like, oh, cool. And so I started using Netflix as a customer. I loved what they were doing. I was a big fan of what they were doing. But at that time, and many people don't remember this far back with the service. They weren't aware of it at this time. But at the time, they were actually just renting one by one, just the way you would at like a Blockbuster, right? And they hadn't yet come up with the the subscription plan. Yep. All you can rent plan. 
And I got an email from them that asked me if I wanted to participate in a test of that program. And I did very much want to participate in that test. So I did it. I loved it. I was like, you are really onto something. And I sent them back my resume. I was just like, I don't know what you need, but here's what I can do. Oh my God. You know, I'm sort of a generalist in tech. I can do whatever. And so they created this role of content manager as the first content manager, heading up a team of content producers, working closely with the editorial group, with the database group, the content production team, the the um, warehouse, the logistics mm-hmm. and operations. So it was a really exciting time and a really exciting role. And um, yeah, I got to do, I got to spearhead a lot of really fun initiatives too. I think I was a subscriber in 2002. So that was oh, still yeah. when it was one disc yeah. before any sort of subscription. And then they went to this hybrid where you got online and you got discs. Do you remember mm-hmm. that time? And then they sent out that email that was like, okay, now you have to pick one or the other. And everybody was right. all up in arms about, about like, what do you mean we don't get both? Not even realizing that pretty soon, like the whole mailing of discs was not going to be something that anybody did anymore. Yeah, I think I had like I still had a DVD rental program for years and years after I was there. And along with the streaming, like you're saying, and I remember at one point that I had had who knows what DVD, what movie it was, but I had had it probably for a year and a half. I think I had moved from (laughs) Nashville to New York with it. Like (laughs) I finally just gave up. I'm like, all right, I'm never watching this movie. I'm sending it back and I'm canceling my DVD program because obviously that's not happening. Right. That's great. (laughs) I love that. I love that you were one of, I mean, Netflix is, I mean, talk about revolutionizing the way we watch not just watch, consume, because they were the first ones to, this is so off point, but I'm sorry. They, they were the <laughs> first ones to do, like, we're just going to release every episode all at once. Like they yeah. invented binging of shows. Yeah. yeah and that's uh, obviously well after my time there, I was yeah. gone before, you know, streaming and original content and all that stuff. And those are so the further revolutions that yeah. they led. But yeah, I mean, it, I think what's so fascinating to me from my early time there is that a lot of the decisions that we made, a lot of the projects we were doing at that time, you know, 2000 era, were the kinds of things that needed to be done in order to clear the way or pave the way for a lot of the more, you know, a lot of the later innovations Mm -hmm. that came. So for example, when I joined the company and took over the content database, all the movies only had one genre assigned to them or attached to them. And if you're a movie fan at all listening out there, you're like, oh, that's a problem, right? Because you could watch an action movie or a comedy movie or a romance movie, but you could not watch a romantic comedy or an action comedy or whatever other (laughs) hybrid, right? And so, you know, it was obvious that that was going to need to be fixed. I worked very closely with the uh, database teams and the engineers and the editorial team. We basically broke the database down and rebuilt it like recoded in a way to say, you know, okay, movies can have multiple genre relationships. And now if you're a Netflix user, you know that when you go through your your home, you know, your listing of movies, there are often these very weird, arcane, subtle kind of categories that, mm-hmm. that the movies are listed in. Like some of them for me are like political auteur cinema. Like it's a really arcane niche kind of movie genre, mm-hmm. but I do love movies like that. And mm-hmm. so what's happened is that they've been using machine learning, artificial intelligence for years mm-hmm. to pay attention to the kinds of things that you watch and I right. watch and everybody else listening to this who uses Netflix watches what do we have in common you know what are the where are the places that we fall off in our subscriptions or whatever 
And so they've used that not only to create better original content, which they have done brilliantly, mm -hmm. but they've also used it to refine the way that they merchandise and market movies within the listings. And that wouldn't have been possible without 20 years ago, right. breaking down the database and rebuilding it the way that we did. So I think it is a really actually a good on topic entry into our, our discussion, because I think it's, it's such a universal need for people right. to recognize that there are projects sitting in front of them right now that are ornery and tedious and difficult and they don't want to tackle. Yeah. But if you try to think ahead five, 10, 20 years, you're going to want to have that project done. There's going to be no advancing and building new things into your life, into your business without tackling that ugly project mm. that's sitting in front of you. Yeah, that actually is a great lesson. <laughs> I think it actually kind of plays into my next question really well, which is you describing yourself often as a strategic optimist. And yeah. I mentioned in the intro, it is hard sometimes to look at the future and look at it, your book, A Future So Bright, and look at it and say, oh, yes, good things are on the horizon. So what is a so strategic optimist? So they seem mm -hmm. actually almost at odds with each other, because I don't feel like strategy and being an optimistic strategy is very pragmatic. And this is this is the steps to do things. And optimism is like, it's all going to be okay. So how does strategy and optimism actually play together and work together? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the way that I would like to tackle it is by backing up and saying, you know, when we think about the future, the way that we culturally have been trained and conditioned to talk and think about the future is only two ways. We either talk about dystopia or we talk about utopia. And neither of those really serves us very well. We all know that utopia really isn't on the table. Like nobody really expects <laughs> all the decisions to be made so perfectly that we're living in a, you know, very perfect society. But I think nobody really expects dystopia fully either. Or if they do, it's, it's not a very pragmatic or useful way to think about the future, mm -hmm. because then that means that everything you're reading about in the news, all the scientific breakthroughs, all the te technological advances, all you're thinking is like, great, how bad is this going to be? Right. right which is a terrible way to think about the yeah. future. So I think what, for me, what dystopia versus utopia does for us is that it's supposed to shine a light on what we think are the worst things that could happen and what we think are the best things that could happen. Mm -hmm. And what I tried to do with strategic optimism is to say, look, we can still use that utility. Like we don't need those two lenses. Those two lenses are useless to us because they're too dichotomized. They're too, mm -hmm. they're too you know, either or. But if we say strategic optimism is about letting us look at what we could do, what would be the best possible outcomes, and how do we realistically avoid the worst case scenarios that might stop us from getting there? Mm -hmm. So how do we build a strategy that actually gets us to the best place we'd like to get to? Hmm. I do also myself live in a very black and white A or B. <laughs> like my world is very bifurcated into good and bad yes and no. That's how I live. It's a fault of my own that I that I discovered and I realized a number of years ago in therapy, which, which is where we discover all of our shortcomings. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been trying, I've been trying to be more of a, a middle ground. There is a gray, it's not just black and white. So I fall into that. It's all going to suck or it's all going to be great 
playground. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's not, it's not choosing one or the other. It's really about the integration of mm -hmm. those ideas, right? It's about saying, you know, if we were to say dystopia versus utopia, like what are we living in now? I don't think anybody would unilaterally say that what we're living in is a utopia for sure. Yeah. And it, I don't yeah. think anybody would say it's dystopia either. So right. it clearly is, has elements of both. Like mm -hmm. there are ways in which things are really off the rails and you listed a bunch of them, right. And in, in, in the intro, um, but there are ways in which we have made things better for society. There are ways in which, you know, people are better educated today than they were in decades past there. They have better opportunities. You know, mm -hmm. we're feeding more people and getting water to more people, clean water. There are plenty of things that have improved in the world and we have a long way to go. So yeah. it's, Trying to recognize yeah. the bothness of the reality of that. Yeah. And I don't think that that precludes, you know, whatever way you need to process the world is how you need to process the world. I think for me, what the value and the meaning of strategic optimism and of the a future so bright in general is not that things are going to be perfect or that, you know, we, we're trying to avoid apocalypse. We are trying to avoid apocalypse, by the way, <laughs> yes. but, but we're doing that by being very realistic about the real world risks and harms that we know could happen. And by also saying, look, what we'd love to see is this, like the best thing that could happen is we use technology to solve a lot of human problems at scale. We get mm. more resources to people. We, we help girls get better educated in places in the world where they can't. We, we, like, we lift people up out of poverty. We get plastics out of the ocean. Like if we could solve all those problems mm. and, and really technology does have a lot to do with solving a lot of those problems, mm -hmm. then that would be the best case possible. But we also know that the technologies that could get us there could also go wildly off the rails. So we need a strategy to prevent us from having that happen while we move ourselves toward the best outcomes. I think you answered my next question. So <laughs> you you know, your book is a future so bright and it's about how we shape a better future. And you you say that we already have the tools to shape that better future. Are we starting from the right spot? Are we looking at the tools we have and saying, okay, how do we use these for good? Are we looking at it in a, in a way in which we are avoiding catastrophe in the future? Yeah, no, I think you're asking a really important question. And I, one of the points that I often make when I advise executives is, you know, so often the way CEOs and other executives think about digital transformation, about the mm -hmm. technology they need to embrace in their business is by starting with the technology. And they start, they, they will, I, I remember years and years ago in jobs that I have had before that I would come into my desk and there would be like a newspaper clipping on my desk with a little post-it note stuck to it. And it might be like a newspaper article about cloud technology. Mm -hmm. And the director might've written a little post-it note that said, what's our cloud strategy? Come see me. <laughs> like, oh no. <laughs> It's going to be one of those days, yeah. right? But that so often is where executives start from. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, AI is all in the news, G chat GPT, what's our chat GPT strategy? Yeah. And it's actually a terrible way to approach these problems. What we need to be doing is starting from the, the integrity of the business. You know, what is the business trying to do? Mm -hmm. What does it exist to do? And what, what problem does it try to solve at scale? And the scale part is where the, the clue that you're going to bring emerging technology into it. You're going to bring automation or AI into it in some way that's going to help you reach that scale. But you have to start with 
something that actually means something to you? Like what problem is it that you know someone needs solved and that you're in a position to solve? And then from the alignment of what it is you're trying to do and what people in the world are trying to accomplish, you can then start to say, all right, we could actually solve that faster, more efficiently, more effectively, and at more at scale if we throw cloud at it or AI right. at it or whatever. But you can't start from cloud or chat GPT or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you can do that to experiment, but you can't do that to come up with a really robust and meaningful strategy. So I think to get back to the way, the question that you asked, I think when I think about it, you know, we, in 2019, I was at the United Nations COP25 Climate Change Summit, and I led a panel on using AI to fight climate change. And I think we've been at a place where we've had for years the opportunity to think about AI and other emerging technologies and how it could fight climate change or, you know, do any of the other things that I mentioned, you know, help get plastics out of the ocean or use solar panels more effectively or things like that. We just have to be very intentional about the problems we're actually trying to solve and using the technology to do that, using whatever tools. It doesn't even have to be technology, you know, calling each other on the phone if that's what it takes, you know, right. or just being very intentional about the kinds of solutions we deploy. And so I think I would imagine that for many of the people who listen to your show, you know, I would guess that many of your audience members are not deeply in technology, are not people who are designing AI tools or solutions, and that's fine. But I think it still applies to go back and say, look, there's some business that you're in, whether you're a freelancer or an entrepreneur or, you know, the CEO of a very large corporation, you're trying to solve a problem for somebody. And mm -hmm. you need to know what that problem is and how to articulate it really well and how you're going to solve it at scale. That's where you start bringing the technology into the mm -hmm. discussion. Because you did bring up AI and we are talking about my kind of listener, I think that my listener might be looking at the job climate and saying, okay, there are a lot of layoffs in the tech industry there's right now ripple repercussions through the banking industry. People mm -hmm. are going to be laid off. People are going to lose their jobs. There's going to be downsizing. I think when we talk about AI and the job market, I think that there is a lot of confusion about how AI and technology is affecting jobs and job creation and are actually jobs, you know, are jobs that humans would do being done by AI robots and and other tech solutions, what are the ramifications in the job market with how much AI is growing right now? So I think there's a couple of points there. One is this certainly does stand to change the job market. What you mentioned about layoffs happening in the tech sector, for example, are not necessarily because of AI, they're because of ambitious growth over the last few years, you know, responding mm -hmm. to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're seeing is a lot of various economic signals. They don't necessarily pertain to AI. It just so happens that AI is having a moment mm -hmm. as we see that play out. But also I think what AI is teaching us in this moment, you know, with, with the rise of ChatGPT and everybody kind of having a field day with generative AI is that we know that there are going to be 
managers and executives, leaders who are going to be very aggressive about starting to replace jobs where they can. So we mm -hmm. saw this already play out in newsrooms, BuzzFeed, CNET, for example, started laying off reporters and using ChatGPT to generate stories. They rushed it and CNET has already had to print an embarrassing retraction that mm -hmm. they got their story completely wrong. They trusted right. AI and they should not have trusted AI. AI is fantastic. You know, ChatGPT and other generative AI tools are fantastic as a writing tool, as something mm -hmm. that, you know, speeds you along and helps you, you know, make some progress. I usually, I have been using them for several years and they get me through writer's block, like nobody's business. Like if I hit a wall, I've like written all I need to, okay. to write for the moment. And I'm like, what am I trying to say next? It's really helpful to be able to use AI and say, try writing the next bit. And oftentimes it won't have written what I meant to write, mm -hmm. but sometimes knowing what you don't want to say is as useful as knowing what you do want to yeah. say. So all of that to say, I think that there are ways that we're going to see AI used alongside human jobs and human productivity. And I think we're going to see plenty of overeager managers and leaders who are going to start laying off people way too ambitiously, way too prematurely. So all of that is happening at the same time, and it's going to make it really hard to read the tea leaves, as you said, in the, mm -hmm. the upfront, the intro. I think we're going to probably have a tendency to read the layoffs and read the overeager movements as the trend, instead of seeing it as a trend that's happening mm -hmm. alongside the fact that you and I and everybody else listening to this program should be educating ourselves on how to use these tools. Because at the moment, it isn't robots or machines that are taking human jobs. Mm -hmm. It's humans who know how to use technology who are taking human jobs. Yeah. So you, are, are the listener, are in a much better place if you know how to use these tools effectively than you would be if you did not, if you, if you swore them off and said, I'm never going to touch those tools. I think that's a great segue. So somebody's listening to you and they're like, wait a minute, I'm sorry. Did she just say she uses something to get through writer's block? I often don't know what to say. I often need answers to questions. How is this different than just saying... Going into the Google machine, how can people start using these tools? Yeah, so I think a lot of people have experimented already with ChatGPT, and there's a lot of other AI tools out there. I, I use a tool called Jasper, which is an AI writing tool that's geared toward online marketing and SEO kind of content. But that's just one variation. Also, if you have ever used the tool Notion, it's like a workspace, a collaborative workspace. I use it with my remote teams okay. to work on projects. And Notion has built into it an AI function that at any point within a document, say you and I were collaborating on notes for this podcast episode. And, you know, just like we might do in so sort of a, a Google doc or something, mm -hmm. we might be working together side by side on that. And we might go like, hey, you know, it'd be really handy if the AI would just suggest for us a list of bullet points for some of the topics we might cover. And again, some of them are going to be terrible. You're going to throw them out right away, yeah. but it might get you thinking and it might break the ice to where it's like, oh yeah, well, let's throw the one about, <laughs> I don't know, internet of things away because nobody's really talking about that right now. But the one mm -hmm. about chat GPT, let's absolutely keep in there. In fact, now that you've mentioned it, it reminds me that I should put in there something about using chat GPT for writer's block. You know, that's the kind mm -hmm. of provocation that's going to keep things flowing and make us more productive. So mm -hmm. it's knowing how to use these tools 
in the right proportion and in the right place and process, not having them replace your writing process, for example, and not having them replace writers at the moment. (laughs) We're just not there yet. Yeah. I hope that we don't get there anytime soon, but I think realistically we are eventually going to see an awful lot of jobs displaced and replaced by the capabilities that AI brings about. But there's not, in our lifetimes, it's not likely that we're going to see all jobs displaced Mm -hmm. by technology. We're going to see a lot of jobs created that are new jobs we would never have imagined were possible before. Right. And all of those are going to take shape around the emerging technologies and to be honest, the emerging opportunities of things like climate change. What we need to do to be resilient and adaptable as climate changes is an intersection with what emerging technology is going to do for us. Mm-hmm. So I think we're we're at a place where we need to line those questions up in our mind and decide, what am I passionate about? What should I really be going after right now? And how should I be building my network? I know that's a really common topic for your discussion yeah. here. How should I be, who should I be connecting with? How should I be building my opportunities in front of me to align with what I think we're going to be investing in. We're going mm-hmm. to be investing in climate change solutions. We're going to be investing further into AI and, and emerging technology. Those things are a sure bet. So mm-hmm. I think it's a great opportunity for people to be flexible with how they think, what kinds of solutions they feel like they're offering into the world and how to get themselves into the right spot. So think of AI more not as the movie Megan. Have you that Megan? Uh, yeah. I have not seen that movie, but <laughs> I do know what it's about. And I think some people think of AI like that, that that's what, where we're heading towards and using it at that it could be a force for good. Like it is, we're already using it. I think there's instances in people's lives where they're using AI and they don't even know it. Right. It's just become part of our, our world and we're yes. used to it. So we're not identifying it as artificial intelligence because we're not thinking about it in that wording or that vein. Yeah. Whenever you've had Amazon or any other retailer make suggestions to you based yeah. on what you just bought, it's using algorithmic data, you know, algorithmic mm-hmm. processes. And that's basically the predecessor to AI in, right. in function. If you've had Netflix make recommendations, if you've had Spotify make recommendations, those are all forms of AI. And so mm-hmm. it's been part of our lives for years. In fact, I don't know if you've used it, but Spotify has a new feature called DJ. No. And it, yeah, it's a pretty cool thing. So if you've been using Spotify for a yes. while, you're probably familiar with the ability to create playlists off yeah. of a song or an artist or whatever. This takes it a step farther. This is actually using an AI generated voice that's coded to sound kind of like a DJ who's got sort of the sonic elements of someone you would expect to sound like a DJ and is narrating in between a couple of sets of songs. So it might play oh. three or four songs in a certain genre or a certain mood or a vibe or whatever, and then say, wrapping that up with whoever, Amy Mann. And now we're heading into a vibe that's more about songs you were listening to last year, but haven't been listening to as much. And it's pretty amazing, honestly. Where do you find it on the app? It does. I have the paid version. So it might be something they're rolling out in testing to uh, only a few users, but if you've got it, you would find it in just kind of the features on your home page there. Okay, It should be there somewhere. And it just says DJ, but yeah, if you find it and you play with it, it. Yeah. I'll look for it. 
It's a super interesting feature. And there you go. That's AI. It's not, you know, it's not going to kill us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I do think you could certainly get into philosophical arguments about is it better for us to hear our own tailored version of a music playlist versus having some kind of common vocabulary of sure. like songs that we all hear on a radio station? But we're sort of past that argument now. Like we've, we've all been having very personalized content experiences for years now. So we're down mm. that road. This is at least adding a delightful experience to mm. it. It does sound fun. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to have sort of an everyday example of of where this is already a part of our life. And, and I think we would be foolish to not expect it to grow and have its impacts on our lives increase. And so, like you said, how do we now begin to learn this technology, integrate it into our lives, become proficient at the technology so that we aren't outdated by the technology ourselves? Yeah, and it's not like, I don't think your listeners have to become programmers, developers, you know, it's not, that's not the issue. The issue is to just not be scared of the technology, to not be foreign to it, yeah, to not avoid it, but instead to be curious and seek mm -hmm. out tools that are available, like the writing tools I've mentioned, or, you know, chat GPT is uh, very available to everybody. Or if you haven't already played with generative AI visual programs like Dolly mm -hmm. and those sorts of things, those are really interesting to play with. But the idea that our jobs are going to be more about having an idea and trying to get technology involved in the process so that it can do it efficiently, so that we can figure out, all right, the workflow of me having an idea to refining it to having a product that I can publish or share or make money off of or whatever looks like XYZ now, but it needs to look like X dot, 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 technology, dot, 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 Z, mm -hmm. you know, and that process is going to be much more streamlined as time goes on, because we're going to be able to increasingly automate it and bring more data into the process that makes it more refined and more relevant. Mm -hmm. But it, it looks daunting initially, because I think these are just unfamiliar processes. So I think yeah. it's all about having the curiosity and the willingness to go seek out these tools and be okay with not knowing them very well at first, but you're you're not knowing them very well on your own time, as opposed to not knowing them very well <laughs> in a job context where yeah. it's going to cost you. Yeah. So aside from becoming proficient and curious and comfortable with AI, it, if the future is not prescribed, as you say, the future is yeah. not prescribed. Besides that one tip, what is the best piece of advice for the listeners as we head towards a future that is unknown? It may be a future so bright, but it is unknown. So what is your best piece of advice? Yeah, I think for what it's worth, a future so bright is the title refers to the future that could be, right? Mm -hmm. It could be bright if we make the right choices. So the best piece of advice, I think, is to have this mindset that things are not necessarily within our control, but we do affect things. We mm -hmm. do have an impact on the outcomes of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. The actions and decisions that we take today very much shape the future. So to, I think to feel empowered, for people mm -hmm. to feel not helpless and not out of control and not, you know, like things are 
moving in a bad, bad direction. Things are moving in a direction and we actually have a chance to make an impact on what direction that goes. And so I think along with that, the sort of corollary to that, to tie back into what we've been talking about is I think taking a, an attitude of lifelong learning is really, really relevant here. Mm. It isn't just about learning AI tools. It's about the fact that we're going to be constantly faced with new things we've not encountered before. And the world is just changing awfully fast. And there are a lot of variables in play. Like we talked about the um, geopolitical factors, the economic upheaval, the mm -hmm. climate change, the, you know, we've got misinformation and disinformation issues going on. We've got privacy and cybersecurity issues. Mm -hmm. And that's in addition to the emerging technology, you know, AI, automation, future of jobs, all of those kinds of things that are very much up in the air. But I think the more we take an attitude that we're just absorbing, we're just learning and we're connecting dots and we're figuring out how are we gonna take this new information and make intentional choices with mm -hmm. it? How are we going to lay out the next set of decisions that start shaping what tomorrow should look like? Mm -hmm. I, as long as we don't kind of have a sense that disaster is imminent, that we're, we're only headed for dystopian outcomes, I think mm -hmm. we stand a really good chance of bringing something very strong and positive to the years ahead of us. Kate, if people want to learn more about you, I mean, you're on, you're on the news, you're traveling the world, you're working with major corporations, but if they want to learn more about you and your work, where's the best place for them to find you? My company, KO Insights, is at koinsights.com. And there's a lot of information about me and my work there. They can also get links there to things like LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and all the places where I sometimes hang out. <laughs> I used to say it was always Twitter. Uh, these days, obviously, things have things have shaken up a bit yep. over there. So yeah. I'm losing my blue check mark in a couple of days and I'm sad about it. But mm. <laughs> we'll move on. We'll move yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kate, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I didn't yeah. understand everything, <laughs> but I am glad we had this conversation. Oh, I think it's fantastic that we had this conversation. Thank you so much. And I hope that if your listeners are confused or curious or would like to have more information that they will reach out, you're more than welcome to do so. I, I'd encourage it. I'd love to hear what intrigues you and what you, what you want to know more about. Great. All right. I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Wonderful. Awesome. Thanks. Listen, I'm not that tech savvy and I'm not a futurist. I know shit about artificial intelligence. No, like I know zero shit about artificial intelligence and I'm not that much of an optimist. So if some of this interview was Greek to you, no, it was for me as well. As someone who doesn't always look at the glass as half full, I do understand that it can be hard to look at the state of our world today and not imagine it all going to shit. But like Kate said, the future doesn't exist yet. We still get to define it and create it. And yes, we do have the tools to build a brighter future, but we have to choose to use those tools in the right way. I'm going to put links to Kate's website in the show notes, but Literally just Google her name, Kate O'Neill, and your Google feed will be filled with her appearances on news and major corporate stages, as well as links to her books and articles. 
we just scratched the surface of Kate's expertise. Like we didn't even scratch the surface, like let's be honest. So I encourage you to learn more about her and her work and her research. Okay. On to the drink of the week, which is, of course it is. Of course it's aptly named. It is called the Future Freeze, which seems odd to me because with all the global warming happening, I don't think we are headed to another ice age, more of a hot, arid, drought-stricken climate. But anyway, I couldn't find that drink. Here's what you're going to need. Three tablespoons of vodka, one tablespoon of blue curacao. Why are these in tablespoons? Anyways, I digress. One teaspoon of lemon juice, you know, freshly squeezed, and half a cup of Sprite. Place the vodka, curacao, and lemon juice in a cocktail shaker filled with ice. Shake well and pour into a serving glass. Top with Sprite and give it a gentle swirl. All right, friends, that's all for this week. Listen, if you haven't signed up for my upcoming webinar, From Unread to Riveting, How to Email Cold Leads Without Being a Hot Mess, with the amazing Terry Trispicio coming up next week on May 24th, click the link in the show notes to sign up. It's going to be just a fantastic 90 minutes that will change the way you think about and approach the cold email so that you can start more meaningful and productive conversations with the people you want to reach. All right. If you want more Julie Brown, you can find my book, This Shit Works, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You can find me on LinkedIn at Julie Brown BD. Just let me know where you found me. You can uh, find me on the Instagram at Julie Brown underscore BD, or you can just pop on over to my website juliebrownbd.com. Until next week, cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works. <laughs>